Hello, I'm Steve Mould. I'm Matt Parker. I'm Helen Arney, and this is another episode of A Podcast of Unnecessary Detail. If you're here for the podcast, that's great. If you're here for the detail, even better. This episode is all about hearts and minds. We'll be searching for the place where logical thought and raw emotion meet. And if you're Matt Parker, that's basically the same place. That's right. In this episode, I'll be doing some loving by numbers. I've got some equations to make you go, ooh... And my section is a complete embarrassment. I'm talking about blushing. It's about blushing. Let's switch our hearts and minds to detail mode. Steve, are you doing hearts or minds today? Well, I'm doing the interaction between the two. Specifically, I want to talk about blushing. It turns out blushing is really interesting. Not just from a physiological point of view, like how does it work? But also, what's the psychology of it? In fact, like what's the evolution of it? So you might know like the physiology of it. When you blush, it's a co-opting of a system that already exists to regulate temperature. So you might know you've got these blood vessels, these tiny blood vessels all throughout your body, including in your skin. And each one of those blood vessels has a little muscle as well. And that muscle can contract or relax. So if you're cold, then your body sends a signal to these tiny muscles that contract your blood vessels or the blood vessels in your skin so that blood doesn't flow as much to your skin and you don't lose as much heat to the environment. So it helps to keep you warm. The opposite is true if you're hot, that those tiny little muscles relax and so blood is able to flow more freely to the skin and so you lose heat to the environment. It helps you to cool down. Steve, so this is something you can see, right? You you can see an effect on your skin. Well, yeah. So for me, I'm quite a pale person. You'll be able to see it quite easily with me. Like if you saw that I was really sort of pale and ashen, you might assume that I'm cold. I mean, I am most of the time. That's your default <laughs> yeah. look. Yeah. So, but if for some crazy... I mean, you're week- the only one of us <laughs> that we can see on the video call who's wearing several coats, <laughs> from what I can tell. It's true. Yeah. That's more because it's very hard to heat my studio. But who am I kidding? It's very rare that I'm warm. But when I am, you can tell by looking (laughs) at my face. What's interesting, though, is the way these tiny muscles are controlled is different to the way your large muscles are controlled. So like your bicep, for example. Um, Like I'm not saying I've got large biceps. I'm just saying that they're bigger than the tiny muscles that control uh, my blood vessels. But I mean, marginally, but um, like, so the way your bicep is controlled, for example, is by nerves. So, you know, your, your brain sends a signal via nerves to your bicep and it contracts and you, you know, lift your arm or whatever. But the way these tiny muscles that control your blood vessels work, it's not by nerves, it's by chemical signaling. Are they only tiny because you skip blood vessel day? <laughs> Like, can you develop these muscles? Can you get better at blushing? Yeah, I wonder. Hang on, if you really worked them, you'd be better at contracting them. So you'd be better at not blushing. You'd be better at going pale rather than red in Steve's case. I take it back. 
Steve, Steve's always pale. I'm constantly clenched on the smallest level. I mean, you, I guess you could work on those muscles. Like if you repeatedly went from a hot to cold environment, you'd be constantly tensing those muscles. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but given that it was a facetious question, let's move on. Um, if you're cold, your body will send a specific chemical around your body through the blood. And these tiny muscles have receptors specifically for that molecule. And so, you know, the molecule lands on the receptor, and that's the signal that tells the, the tiny muscles to contract. What's interesting, and I, this is an oversimplification, but the tiny muscles in your face have an extra receptor for a different molecule. What that means is your body can contract and dilate the vessels in your face independently of the rest of your body. And that's where the ability to blush comes from. So there's one dedicated molecule, like colderine. <laughs> colderine, yeah. Which you only release when you're cold, yeah. and that tells your skin to bring all the blood in. It's getting cold out yeah. there. But you've also got blusherine. I mean, I, I thought I was oversimplifying, but yeah, okay. okay well, you know, I'm just... <laughs> no, it, it is more complicated than that, but that's, that's a good overview of the prevailing view at the moment. Oh, and by the way, it's not just the face, like... For some people, it would include the neck as well uh, and the ears. Um, here's what's interesting about blushing. You blush when you are embarrassed or ashamed um, or you feel regret about something. And it's important to communicate those feelings to the people around you. You know, we're social creatures and it's important to conform to the social norms of the people that we are around. Otherwise, we might end up as an outcast. And, you know, certainly for our ancestors, being an outcast was a really bad thing. You know, it, it reduced your likelihood of passing on your genes and so on. So it's important that we're able to communicate that we know that we have messed up. We know that we have crossed some line. We have oh. disregarded some social norm within the group. And of course, we can communicate that. Like, for example, if I was to go to a friend's house and I was looking at the pictures on the wall and I'm saying, oh, that's nice, that's nice. Oh, I don't like that one, though. I'm not sure about the colours on that one. And then my friend said, oh, I painted that one. This is very specific. <laughs> it is very specific, <laughs> isn't it? And I don't want to talk about it anymore. But... And so in that situation, it's important for me to communicate that I'm sorry that I made that mistake. And so I could just say, I'm really sorry. I feel embarrassed. I feel ashamed. I feel uh, embarrassed by how bad you are at painting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just double down on it. That's the solution. Yeah. But if I wanted to communicate those things, I could just say it. But the issue is, maybe I don't really feel it. Maybe I don't really feel regret. Maybe I'm just saying it because I know that's the thing that I'm supposed to say in this situation. And so what blushing does is it's a mechanism that we know can't be controlled. It, we know that blushing is out of our control. So when we see someone blush, we know it's genuine. We know that they are genuinely embarrassed about the thing that they just did. And so that's an important signal. And what's interesting is, you know, when you feel embarrassed, when you blush, it's horrible. It feels horrible in the moment. Blushing is this really unpleasant thing that we try to avoid. And that strengthens the power of the message as well. It's like you see someone blush and you're like, well, they're really uncomfortable at the moment, but they're blushing anyway. So I know that they feel embarrassed. I know that they know 
that they have broken one of the rules of the group. And I also know that they're very unlikely to do it again because of how unpleasant that feeling was. And so it's an example of something we do that is bad for us in the moment, something that's really unpleasant, but it is good for us in the long run because it helps with the cohesion of the group. It helps us to remain part of the social group and not become an outcast. So this is like two sides of the same coin where one side is you're an idiot and the other side is yeah. you're a good member of the group. So <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah. It feels like to be able to kind of vouch for you, blushing is like this is a cost yeah. to, to the individual to blush. And that kind of backs up that, you know, I'm legitimately embarrassed. Yeah. It feels a bit like mating displays. Where if an individual in a species is just like, you got to believe me, I've got resources to spare. <laughs> yeah. No one's going to believe them, yeah. right? But if you've got some ridiculous plumage or something, you're like, no, this is a waste of resources. <laughs> yeah. Right. That actually vouches for the surplus. Yeah. And it feels like it's like the negative version of that. Yeah. Do you know if very good actors can fake blushing? Do you know if politicians can stop themselves blushing? Yeah. I read some yeah. articles about, you know, how to stop yourself blushing and... They were all psychological tricks, you know. Um, you, there's nothing, there didn't seem to be anything sort of physiological that you could do to prevent yourself blushing. There were all ways of kind of almost disassociating from the current situation. But it's interesting, like, you know, we, we would all rather not have to blush, but in the long run, it's actually better for us if we do blush. Um, and it, interestingly, it happens more uh, amongst young adults, which is perhaps because that's when you're forming new relationships. It's also when you're inexperienced socially, and so you're more likely to make mistakes. Our producer, Lindsay, has asked an additional question. We are all for more detail. So um, she's, she said that um, she gets a thing where certain drinks make parts of her face go red and it's not blushing. It's a reaction to what she's drinking. Steve, is that anything to do with blushing or is that a totally separate deal? Yeah, I mean, alcohol is often described as a dirty drug because... It does so many different things in your body. It interacts with so many receptors. So, you know, it reduces your inhibitions. Um, it makes you feel dizzy. It makes you slur your words. It, it does a lot of things. It also vasodilates as well. You know, sometimes people say if you're cold, you know, have a shot of whiskey or something like that because it will make you feel warmer. And it will, but it's absolutely something you should not do because... What it does is it vasodilates and so your skin feels warm because your blood is able to reach the surface of your skin because alcohol has that effect. But that's really dangerous. You know, the reason you feel cold and the reason you're vasoconstricting is because you need to. So if you're out in the cold and you think I'm, I'm freezing here, take a shot of whiskey, it's actually going to make you cool down quicker even though you'll feel warmer for that brief moment. So it's a terrible idea. Um, and I guess it has a similar effect on the receptors for some people uh, in the face. So, so alcohol is a kind of anti-colder drink. <laughs> He's and, still going I mean, along with lines. to carry on with your stupid naming system, yes. <laughs> Don't make me blush, Steve. <laughs> I'm quite glad Steve has already blurred the lines between hearts and minds because I thought I would do pretty much the same thing. Mathematically, I've come up with the most romantic number. And I say I've come up with, I'm just bringing it to present to you. It's been known since antiquity, and it's uh, 220. So if you want a number 
which is going to uh, stimulate the heart as much as the mind, 220, is your winner. Right. So the main question is... uh, I assume there'll be no follow-on questions, so I don't understand... (laughs) So is that the number of dates you need to go on with someone before you? Oh, that's good. That's a generous number of dates. That's I mean, there's the whole optimal stopping theory about how many dates you should go on, and there are ways to calculate that if you want to be very precise about how you strategize your partner finding mission. <laughs> so is it? And maybe two, you shouldn't sorry, call it, two, it that. Working title. <laughs> <laughs> is it 220 dates with one person or one date with 220 different people? That oh, would I be think my that would theory. Be one date with 220 people. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Yeah. I find that whole thing a bit off anyway because w- within the details of it, you have to know how many people you're likely to date in your life or something yeah. like that. You need to know in advance, don't you? Well, I take it you'd get an upper bound. You'd think, what's the maximum number of people before I just call it quits? And I'm like, forget <laughs> this. I'm out. How, the the settling number they call it. The yeah, the settling <laughs> number. Yeah, yeah. You're like, uh, frankly, it's just not worth. Statistically, it's like a capture and release estimation. You're like, I just don't <laughs> think it's the odds are not yeah. in my favour. Or you know, to find your soulmate, let fate take its course. That's the solution, isn't it? <laughs> and what? What? And <laughs> <laughs> to meet my soulmate, I almost let eight take its course because. I met uh, my wife, Lucy, thank you, good segue, because we were both working on the same course at a university, and she heard a rumor that there was another person working on the course whose watch told the time in binary. Uh, oh, no. And uh, that was the first she ever knew about me, was someone else working there had a watch that told the time in binary. She's like, I want to meet that person. And it was this guy. She was like, so I'm that's... never going to get to 220. I'm going to stop now. Exactly. She's like, that done that's it so hang on this so this 220 number this isn't this isn't anything about like the physical process of dating no it's nothing about the strategy for dating it's nothing to do with you've got 200 you know it takes 220 muscles to contract a a blood vessel or something like that right it's it's um (laughs) it takes 220 muscles to say i do or to like yeah exactly yeah 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 it takes 220 muscles to smile politely while matt's talking about the number 220 (laughs) and 220 you know this is the mind part of the hearts and minds so if you look at the number 220 you can tell very quickly it's not a prime number as in Mm -hmm. it's got numbers that divide into it because for a start it's even it's an mm, even number. Mm. So you know it's going to be divisible by two. It's also, well, it's obviously divisible by one. Let's just get that out of the way. That's technically a factor. I don't think I'm Not going out on a limb to say it's divisible by 10. It, yes. Oh, easy, nice Helen. move. And that will give you 22 for free because it's going to be 22 times <gasps> 10. So that gives you two factors. It gives you five and two as well. Oh, it gives you five. Also gives you five. Yeah. Well, you could take that five and then you have to move the two over to 22. So it'd be five times 44. There's, there's some more factors. Um, I didn't know this would be a game, but I like where we're going with this. 11. You also, 11. Very nice. And what would uh, that be 11 by? 20. 20. We have a winner. N- there's nothing more fun than spot mental arithmetic challenges. Um, <laughs> but you can, you can. You get the sense, actually, there's a lot of factors in the number mm-hmm. 220. And they are, for completeness, 1, 2, 4, 5... As we covered, 10, 11, 20, 22, 44, we would have got there in a second, uh, 55, and of course, 110, which is half. 
half of 220. And of course, 220 itself. That's a nice host of factors. It's, it feels it's good, like it's a lot. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's got a certain pleasingness to it, which is hard to articulate why, why I think that they're in a nice pattern. However, they are provably a nice set of factors because if you add them all together, um, including one, but excluding 220, we're not going to include the number itself as its own factor. I mean, one's pushing it. We're not going to allow the actual number. If you add all those numbers together, you get 284, which is a bit of an anticlimax. However, <laughs> 284, if you add all the numbers that go into 284, you get 220. And so Whoa. these are a pair of numbers where if you add all the factors of one of them, you get the other number. They do the same thing to each other. The factors of yeah. one add up to the other one. First of all, what? Uh, 1, 2, 4, 71, 142. Thank you. I'm um, very relieved now. Secondly, yes. So each of them, <laughs> if you add all their factors, you get the other number. And so it's kind of like each number is intimately related to the other number or linked somehow. Officially... They're called an amicable pair, which I feel like undersells the closeness of their relationship, just calling them amicable. And mm. they've actually been, since antiquity, 220 and 284 have been a symbol of uh, either romance or very good friendship. Very early on, when people realized they had this, this compatible property, they then used that as like, a representation or an analogy or a manifestation of a relationship between two humans, which I think is amazing. And uh, I've been very impressed with uh, Steve's either good feigning of not knowing this or forgetting that we sell on maskier.co.uk <laughs> a set of split heart uh, key rings where is one's that got... what those are? That's what <laughs> I still don't know which category you're in. He's not blushing either, so he's not embarrassed. So, <laughs> but he's put on another coat. But, yeah. Um, so yeah. So we sell a split heart set of keyrings. One's got two hundred and twenty on it. One's got two hundred and eighty-four. And I actually had one on my keyring for a very long time, and it got so kind of worn that I eventually I retired it. It was looking pretty. I mean, obviously they're very high quality, and we recommend all the products on very durable. Yeah. This begs the question: Who had the other one, Matt? And did they retire your love? You, okay, first of all, Lucy had it, um, and secondly, she she retired it sooner. So oh. these are some of our early <laughs> prototypes. We made them just out of um, quite cheap plywood. But I, I liked it because it was like the prototype when we were coming up with the idea. And so I, I, they're the ones I kept and they, they um, did not last. I also retired the binary watch. And I was like, well, that's done mm. its job. And <laughs> it's now... I mean, and if, it was if a I've, total pain in the ass to use on a daily basis. <laughs> it was, you know what? 30 minutes, half an hour is not off the power 32. And so the number of ones... <laughs> is not a bad way of splitting half hour, quarter hour, and so on. Mm. And you just, the more you see, the closer you are to, to 60. And so yeah, I thought it was yeah. great. I wore it because I was a teacher. And whenever students are like, what time is it? And I'm like, well, it's 1101 past 1010. <laughs> oh and let's get back to work. <laughs> so uh, I miss teaching sometimes. Yeah, but they're not the only set of numbers that do that. So you can pick a bigger pair. And some of the mathematical greats throughout the ages 
have done exactly that. So in 1636, Fermat, of last theorem fame, actually bothered to finish this one. They found uh, the pair <laughs> 17,296, which uh, pairs up with 18,416, which is quite nice. Wow. And uh, Descartes, uh, two years later, Descartes found, obviously having to outdo Fermat, 9 million. 363,584. You add the factors of that together, you get 9,437,056, and then vice versa. And so they, they oh. get pretty big pretty fast. But Are the there abs- ones smaller than that? Yes and no. Great question. Oh. So there is none smaller than 220,284. That's as oh. low as you're going to get. They are famously the smallest one. We have known about those since the ancient Greeks. Everyone else missed the next two. What? So the second smallest pair of 1,184 and 1,210, no one spotted that until a 16-year-old student found it in 1866. So I love it. It's one of the great examples of someone, like a non-professional mathematician, this is like a 16-year-old student, who then discovered something that everyone else had been overlooking for literally millennia. And they'd found loads of bigger ones, and they just missed missed this little pair just um, hanging out there. So the search algorithm isn't exhaustive, I guess. No. And so Mm. uh, Fermat and Descartes were coming up with techniques to kind of locate them, but none of them are perfect. Because when I'm listing the factors, I'm doing every single factor. But actually, all those factors, once we realized it was 22 and 10, we're like, well, actually, we're gonna, we can move the 5 around and we got the 2. It's all just the number of ways you can arrange the prime factors. And so mm. there is a logic to them. However, adding factors puts... A, I'm going to use the word random here, but I don't mean that in quite the strict sense. It provides a certain amount of unpredictableness. Once you start combining adding and effectively multiplication, you get some unusual results coming out the other end, which keeps them quite... Hard to pin down, difficult to locate. Mm. I love that it was a 16-year-old uh, who was like, I've got this beautiful number. Who am I going to give it to? <laughs> I, I don't know. I just I just feel like whoever they gave it to, the, the likelihood of that relationship lasting was very small. It's a famously bad age to discover a mathematical <laughs> pair of numbers. You haven't got the life experience to know how to deal with it yet. No. <laughs> I bet he blushed a lot looking for the right person. And there weren't binary watches back then, so it was very hard to just distinguish who might be. They were just like, I've got a sundial that just does it in ones and zeros. <laughs> Will you Honestly, be my girlfriend? If I had been born a couple centuries earlier, I have no idea. I don't think I would have panned out, I'll be honest. <laughs> I think I was born as early as possible for the concept of me to work. <laughs> I do not disagree with that. <laughs> now, the, Thank you, Ellen. Now, the, the flip side of this is uh, the number 276. Because we we might be wondering, well, if 220 and all these other numbers, if they give you these fantastic pairs, what do all the other numbers do? Like, if we get a different number. Actually, does anyone want to suggest a number? I'll put it in. I'm not going to lie. I cobbled together some code in the 20 minutes before we started this recording. (laughs) If anyone would like to offer a number, I will um, tell you how lucky it is in in love and friendship. Uh. 624. Is that just an arbitrary number or is that... Um, yes. Good work. Okay. No, it's my well, pin number. 600. And, but where does the zero go? Uh, 624, which Steve has now given us 
with no personal meaning, if you add together all the factors of 624, of which there are quite a few, my goodness, 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 8, 12, 13, 16, 24, look at them all, there's loads. They add to give you 1,112. Wow. Which, uh, the digits, if you add together all of its uh, factors, proper factors, you get 988, and that gives you 972, and that gives you 1,576. There's a lot of numbers joining in here, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, that gives you 874, 566, and so on, so on, so on. If you carry that on, after 18 steps, you hit one. Because uh. after 17 steps, you hit a prime. You hit 43. Oh. No factors, okay. just one. And so you go to one. Yeah. So any yeah. prime number slams you straight into one. And if you pick a non-prime, like you very nicely did, Steve... If at any point in that process you hit a prime, game over. That's that's yep. like the I give up point in the romantic search for that number. <laughs> it, it, it turns out after 18 attempts, it's like, forget it. Can I guess and try and beat maps? Oh, yeah. Like chain so, of events. So Steve made it 18 steps. Okay, here we go. Thank you. I mean, I should pick something that I know has loads of factors. I, I immediately thought of 999. And then I thought, oh, no, it should be, like, more difficult. That seems so obvious. Like, that's got some factors. Okay, but obviously... It's also that you go straight into a prime. 999 factors add to 521. Prime, boom, over. Two steps. I I, I, I said that's one I wasn't going to choose. I'm glad glad you were... Yeah. (laughs) Nice loophole. What's uh, the next one? You're not necessarily going to choose. Okay. Well, I might... I was thinking about um, a thousand... Get off the fence, Helen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 1024 oh power two oh. look at this it, that's that's two two to the power of like whatever nice you got seven steps how is that less well it just depends what you land on next well you, you chose a power two so if you add together all of its factors yeah. that's basically every power of two smaller than it which gives you one less than that power of two so actually <clears throat> the next number is 1023 <clears throat> and then that now now you're in now you're off and racing. That gives you 513, 287, 49, 8, 7, 1. Ah, yeah. And I've given away my PIN number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what about what about the number you mentioned? You mentioned a number and then you said nothing about it. What was it? 276? 276. Yeah. 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 That, that's the worst case scenario, <laughs> which right. I'm going to oh. keep avoiding for a little bit longer because <laughs> there's one other good case. So the number Steve picked hit a prime. The number Helen picked picked a prime. Most of the time, you pick a number, it hits a prime. The other out that doesn't end in tiers like 276 is if it hits a loop. So there are some numbers where instead of being a pair, you have numbers with... Well, actually, there's the trivial loop. There's numbers like 28 and 496, where if you add together all their factors, you get themselves. So they're technically in a loop of one. You know, they're self-sufficient. And then, that's my final comment on that analogy. And then you've got numbers that get into a bigger loop. So there's a loop of five numbers, the smallest value of which is 12,496. So if you add together its factors, you get another number. Add their factors, you get another number. Eventually, you come back after five. And there are loops that are four numbers long, six, eight, nine. uh, And there's one big one discovered which is 28 numbers in a row wow where each one 
gives you another number when it doesn't repeat until 28 later. This is for polyamorous relationships. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I do not want to see the Google calendar for that scenario. That's going to be messy. It'll be a scheduling nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What people are working on is 276, which is... I don't know if open relationship is quite the analogy here, (laughs) but we don't know what happens to 276. So... Wow. It's, you add together its factors, you get another number. You add together its factors, you get another number. And the numbers get big. Because each number doesn't have to be bigger than the previous one. But for 276, they race off. And we've followed it for hundreds of terms. And the numbers get, uh, now have hundreds of digits. And it gets too big to compute. And so we don't know. That's wild. No it one knows. hasn't settled. Hasn't settled. And it, but it keeps going. It doesn't give up. So we have no idea if... That sequence of numbers will eventually hit a prime or hit a perfect number or hit a loop or hit something that will cause it to stop or if it will go on forever. Open question. We have no idea in mathematics. And 276 is just the smallest example of a number that does that. There are other numbers which are the beginning of these chains, which as far as we can see, disappear into unimaginably large numbers, too big for us to follow and find out what happens. You can apply your own romance-based analogy to that scenario. I'm going to move on from talking about mathematical love gifts to a mathematical love song with a side order of unnecessary detail. Um, We should probably just start by playing the song. Lindsay, could you do the honours? Baby looked at this empirically and I think you're the one for me plus or minus three and you're my man and I want you to understand how it feels when I hold your hand so I'll draw a Venn diagram Statistically, I love you And mathematically, I need you And graphically, I want you And on average, I'm gonna make you mine Well, you're beautiful My love for you is irrational And it's constant, it's recurring And it's infinite and you can use it to calculate The circumference of a circle of any known diameter Maybe that's not love Maybe I'm just thinking of pi Ah, pi Statistically, I love you When you grasp my arithmetic, I find it very sensual Give me your raw data and I'll show you my conclusion Give me a new equation and I'll name a biscuit after you Like Choco Leibniz or Fig Newton or Petit Fourier I know it's technically a cake, but Or Thomas Hobbes Knob or Pythagoras Cream Statistically, I love you. The 
psychologically I need you And rhetorically do I want you And theoretically you are already mine That's really nice Thank you. What I love is often you write comedy songs, but that is just a nice straight down the line, true to experience <laughs> romantic song, <laughs> which I like. It's grounded. By the way, I have got better at endings <laughs> of songs since I wrote that. Uh, and I've also got better at fact checking. So either of you, I know we've done this song on <laughs> yep. stage a whole bunch of times. So I actually changed one of the words when we do it on stage. So you may not have picked oh. up um, mm-hmm. the error. Anyone? It, it, it was jarring, both because it's different to what I'm used to from us doing it live, and it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's when you... I didn't notice if, it. That, well, I know why, Steve, because you really tune out if for any discussion of pie. You just stop paying attention. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you described pie as recurring. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. That was a mistake. Uh, and when I recorded it some time ago, I've just left it in as a kind of Easter egg to see if anyone's really listening. And it that's t- a good spin. T- turns good out spin. Steve wasn't. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> when we do this song live, I do sing constant non-recurring instead of recurring because obviously otherwise it, Matt wouldn't mm. find it as romantic because it would be... Incorrect. Can't you just record yourself singing non? <laughs> just sneak it into the edit. Just dub it in. Just sneak it in. I'm sure that's something Lindsay can do. Yeah. But with Matt saying it, with the, uh, Matt's voice saying it. And it's constant, it's non. Recurring and it's infinite. Seamless. No one's even going to notice. <laughs> oh my God. Right. Uh, so when we used to do this song live, and I used to get the words right, we had Matt doing it on an overhead projector and steve doing like a competing powerpoint version of this song and what was i really loved about this version that we do live is that we have a whole bunch of equations that are undisputably beautiful and trigger off emotional responses there's the point where we i sing you're the one for me and matt on the overhead projector he writes minus e to the power of I pi, which is a version of Euler's identity, and then and then says that's equal to one. So like you're the minus e to the I pi for me. You know that that beautiful, essential, transcendental equation of Euler's. Like it it triggers off an emotional response in people. I that's the, that's true for me. I don't know if that's true for you. Oh, hundred percent. Yep. Well, I I obviously prefer e to the i tau. Then you don't need the minus <laughs> sign. It's just a bit cleaner, isn't it? We're not starting this now. So it isn't just me and you, Matt, and to some extent Steve, who thinks that these equations are beautiful. Someone reminded me the other day of a study that was done by UCL Imperial College and the mathematics department of edinburgh university where they showed a bunch of mathematicians different equations 60 different equations of varying complexity and significance and they showed them to them while they were in an mri scanner so they were scanning their brains Mm, while they were showing them a whole bunch of different equations and asked them whether they thought the equations were beautiful or neutral or ugly and what's so interesting about this experiment is the equations that mathematicians thought were beautiful triggered off the same patterns in the brain as if they were looking at a beautiful piece of art or 
an incredible piece of music or something that's more traditionally seen of as an aesthetically beautiful emotional event so like mathematicians that's amazing do think that these equations are as beautiful as something that is traditionally seen as beautiful what I love about that study is in the write-up they had to point out that the study was approved by the ethics committee <laughs> of UCL I don't know why, like, because they had a control group. Maybe it was to show the control group the maths equations, or was it to show the mathematicians art? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I was... What was the more unethical? This is a really interesting study, and they've gone out of their way to make sure that they are only checking for whether equations are beautiful. They're not checking for other things. So they also did a survey mm. afterwards to find out how well each mathematician understood each equation. So it wasn't like in the MRI scanner, they saw an equation and, and it wasn't, um, oh, I understand that, that they were detecting. It was, that's right. beautiful. So they, they, because of all the control measures they put in place by getting all of the equations ranked beforehand by beautifulness and then asking afterwards for how much everyone understood them, they're mm. controlling to make sure that it is the beauty that they're reacting to, not the mm. understanding. And this to me, I find so interesting from a professional point of view because the thing I try to do with songs that I'm writing and I'm writing a musical at the moment, I'm trying to operate on a whole load of different levels. I'm trying to operate on the level of being clever, right? It's uh, Someone goes, oh, that's very clever what you've said there or what you've written. Oh, musically, that's a very clever thing. And you're also trying to do something funny, but you're also trying to do something beautiful. Mm. And I feel intuitively that these different things, like hit different parts of your brain. You get like something that's beautiful yeah. and that goes like pow over there. Something that's clever, you can get your different part of your brain to go like, oh, pow over there. And something funny or something, you know, all of these different things. And if you get it right, you just get a cascade of brain explosion if it works. And, and this study mm. for me kind of gives me hope that that is not a false assumption that I'm working on that actually it's, it's worth trying to get things that are clever and funny and beautiful all at the same time and um, whether I manage to achieve it or not is is a different question but yeah. I wanted to check with you both about whether some of the equations that they tested are equations that you find beautiful as well and we'll put them in the show notes so you can um, decide for yourselves at home as you're listening right so uh, highly rated equations the equation that was rated most beautiful was Euler's identity. Mm -hmm. um, so Classic. an average rating of nearly 9 out of 10. Oh, it's a good one. Nothing causes your brain to release methadrine <laughs> like, <laughs> like Euler's equation. We're still doing that. Does that make your blood vessels dilate? <laughs> oh, it does. There's, um, But what... What's particularly beautiful about something like that is just the amount of connections it makes at once. Mm. Mm. And mm. so, yeah, that, the sense of wonder when you behold that is, yeah, amazing. There's um, one that got an average rating of negative seven, thereabouts. Uh, the most consistently rated as ugly was Ramanujan's infinite series for one over pi. Um, what? Yeah. Ah. It's pretty wild. It's got loads of different numbers that don't seem to have a huge amount of meaning. Like, 
two root two over nine eight oh one and then there's a sum and then there's a whole bunch of numbers i can hear matt googling in the background yeah mm-hmm. it's not um oh look at it it's so good <laughs> pat- you can't obviously see patterns in it and it's numbers are very big and there's no you know simplicity and elegance mm-hmm. are, are valued mm-hmm. aren't they and once you start throwing these big numbers that don't seem to have much structure to them it, it loses some of that maybe this this is interesting when Helen was talking about the blurred lines between understanding and beauty because I think what I find beautiful is the discovery like you look at that and you're like oh my goodness mm. that links pi to the square root of two to an infinite sum to factorials to all these things and I'm like and how is that discovered like almost the bigness of the numbers I'm like what a rare gem that is of all the numbers and equations this one was discovered where all the bits just fit together and that that unexpected result and what i'm trying to say is uh, uh people were wrong when they were <laughs> I think gave what, this a negative seven what we're trying to say is you you have a more highly attuned aesthetic sense when it comes to equations which <laughs> may be as much nature as nurture we will never know what i'm trying to say is that The song we heard on its own does one thing. But when you perform that song in front of a crowd of people with a visual overhead projector and a PowerPoint competing behind you, showing some of the most beautiful equations that have ever been formulated, I feel like that is reaching some kind of optimum level of beauty and funny and clever Um, And I just want to do it again, right? I miss it. I miss it. (laughs) That's why all songs should have backing notes. (laughs) It sounds to me like what you're saying is people need to go and buy the DVD. (laughs) It's not on any of our DVDs, (laughs) Steve. It's not on. That's the most shameless plug since maskgear.co.uk was mentioned. It's not on any of them, Steve. I don't know if you... Is it not? not? No. You have already Uh. forgotten that across the three shows that we have filmed and are available on digital download, this song is not on them. We that was from never Psy Curious. It. We didn't film that. Yeah, yeah. we never released yeah. it. I really miss it. I really feel like it contributes something to the beauty of the world that is available to us. Uh, and also, mm. it heralded the invention of the Pythagoras cream, which was a genuine yes, biscuit. Yeah. We, we pretended that it was a real biscuit. Matt like pretended to design it on the overhead projector at the end of the song. And uh, at one of our tour shows, I think it was in the Midlands somewhere. Derby, Derby. One of our now lovely friends, Wendy, who we didn't really know at the time, turned up at one of our shows having baked a Pythagoras cream. So <laughs> not only is this song, when performed live, a contribution to the general levels of funny, clever and beautiful, it is also like a culinary pinnacle for the future so that's the end of the episode another skirmish in the battle for hearts and minds as always we've got show notes and as always we are part of the acast creator network yes both those things full of extra details the show notes specifically have links to the amicable number keyrings a free download of the uncorrected version of helen's song which i don't know why you want that and possibly some extremely rare footage of Steve blushing, if we can capture that in the wild. Can your epidermis even lift, Steve? 
<laughs> I don't think it can, no. We would love you to review us on iTunes if you get a spare moment. It really does make a difference to how many people get to hear about the podcast. Or just let us know what you think on social media or maybe send us a nice email or something. Podcast at festivalofthespokennerd.com If this podcast has given you an appetite for more free stuff, all of our YouTube channels are linked from our website. And... For the price of just pie pounds, you can download any of our comedy specials where we do science and maths live on stage. You can get all of that at festivalofthespokennerd.com. Thanks for coming. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye. See ya. A podcast of unnecessary detail is made by Festival of the Spoken Nerd. That's Helen Arney, Steve Mould and Matt Parker. Our series producer is Lindsay Fenner, who also produced this episode. Our theme music is by Howard Carter, and we're proud to be part of the Acast Creator Network. Thanks for listening. Listening.